Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting August 30th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about one of the most mysterious objects in the universe, the teenage brain. We'll have the first installment of a new segment, Ask a Scientist, and that's going to be about the Earth's magnetic poles flipping around. And speaking of flipping around, we'll have the latest Pluto status update, and we'll test your knowledge about some other recent science in the news, too. First up, journalist Leslie Saba. She's the author of the cover story in the current issue of Scientific American Mind magazine about the teen brain. I called her at her home in Cleveland. Hi, Leslie. How are you? Hello, Steve. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm okay. So tell me about the teenager's brain. Is it really different from an adult's brain? The research shows that it is. It shows that when teens are performing certain tasks, that they work much harder uh, using their their decision-making prefrontal cortex areas of the brain than adults do. And that means that they're recruiting so much of that portion of the brain that if another stressor is added in a particularly challenging situation, that they can't handle that load. What do you mean by another stressor? Well, say they're driving or um, say they're, they're performing a complex task. Driving is a good one. And a car in front of them suddenly slams on the brake and they're following maybe too closely. And if they're talking on the cell phone, they may not be able to process all that information as rapidly as an adult and may miss the brake pedal, may not react fast enough, may do any number of things that, that experienced older drivers wouldn't do. And this is actually related to structural business going on in the prefrontal cortex? Researchers believe that, yes. They believe that an adult brain recruits more of the whole total brain than adolescents do, so that some of the prefrontal cortex would be occupied with the decision-making, but an adult brain recruits other parts, different parts of the brain, to help in making decisions. That takes the load off the prefrontal cortex, allows it to handle other inputs or stressors as they come in. So multitasking for a teenager is really a bad idea. Yes, yeah. And But they do it all the time, right? Yes, they do. Uh, what ages are we talking about? Is it really set like, you know, 12 years and three months to 18 years and four months, or is there some variability on either side? Yeah, it's not that structured. The studies looked at adolescents. I believe they were from 11 to about 17, and they found um, that that age group got better as they got older in recruiting other parts of the brain. But what happens is that as uh, the brain matures, there's a process called synaptic pruning that goes on, and that means that the brain is getting rid of unnecessary neuronal connections, connections between nerves, and that speeds up processing. So this goes on throughout early adult life, and this was surprising to some of the researchers that into their early 20s, in fact, uh, the brain was still maturing um, and and getting rid of some of that extra neuronal material and adding a faster process to the axon, the the delivery of the um, the, the impulse to the nerves by laying down more of the matter that helped the transmission of those electrical signals. That's really interesting. Most people might might assume that the process by which the brain matures would be to add more connections, but you're actually talking about taking away connections that can confuse the issue? 
Yeah, uh, they're not necessary. The brain adds a lot of neuronal tissue throughout adolescence, and it starts pruning it back, called synaptic pruning, because it's unnecessary. The brain at that point starts molding itself to the environment, so to speak. It, it is a necessary process because it adapts itself to its environment. Now, there's some controversy, and you get into it in the article, where some people, just some researchers, just don't think that this uh, idea of a of a different brain for teenagers really holds water. There's one, yeah, these scientists don't have any experiments to draw on, but they cite others' research. They cite research that's fairly old, and I haven't seen any experiments that they've done to point out their opinions, but it's necessary to cover those as well. The people who don't believe in the teen brain, they don't deny the results of the experiments that have looked at the structure of the brain. They just don't think that those structural issues account for as much behavioral differences as the other researchers do. It's hard to get your hands around what the naysayers really believe because they cite other research and they don't point to their own experiments. So it's hard to get a real grip on on their theories but the the underlying cause is that it's impossible to monitor or to determine a teen brain because society molds the brain from birth and they point so, to multicultural studies or multicultural behavior where they say teenagers in other cultures don't have the same kind of issues that american teenagers do yeah they do that and they 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 contend that the problems that uh, with with um, decision making or with behavioral outbursts that teens are usually accustomed to having or we're accustomed to seeing don't occur in other societies because the societies have different expectations and raise their teens that raise their children differently. There's no experimental evidence to show that that's true, but it is an interesting point and hard to prove. Hard to prove and hard hard to disprove. It's mostly just yes. observational yeah. and anecdotal. Yeah. Are there any kind of policy implications for these studies? You know, should should the driving age be reconsidered, drinking age? Well, that's an interesting concept. You'll find that neurosurgeons will, uh, neuroscientists, excuse me, will tell you that it's very difficult even for an, a fully formed adult brain to say drive and carry on a conversation on a cell phone. That if they had their way, they'd ban all conversation while driving on cell phones, not with passengers. And they, to a person, suggest that teens not be allowed to drive and talk on a cell phone at the same time. But I don't know, the implications for policy is a you know, much thornier issue. I don't know that you would get that kind of legislation passed, but probably it would be a lot safer. I think they'd all agree. It's just too much input. And you touched on something briefly. I'm sure listeners are thinking, well, what's the difference between talking on a cell phone while you're driving or talking to a fellow passenger? But there is a difference. There is. The fact is that a fellow passenger can also observe the situation in a car and say there's a, an emergency situation. The passenger will stop talking and allow the driver to, you know, that will give the driver the time to react appropriately. It's much different with a, with a, disembodied conversation and the conversation is right in your ear. The, the verbal input is, is right there. And, and of course, you're 
the, the participant in the conversation can't see what's going on in the car, so you're still getting, the driver would still be getting verbal input while the emergency or the, the sudden uh, action occurred and couldn't help by stop, stop talking. Uh, one other thing about the uh, the article, there's the, the the author's note in the article, and it mentions that you've been in Iraq recently. What were you doing there? Uh, I'm a medical journalist by training, and I was very fortunate. I had the great good fortune to fly with the 50th medical company, the 101st Airborne, who did the medevacs in the Baghdad area. So I ended up flying for three and a half weeks with the 50th medical company, a great, great group of people. We picked up casualties from the point of wounding, and the care that they received was amazing. Kept them alive. And do you have any plans to go back? I'd love to. I'd love to go back and follow the Marines this time, the Navy corpsmen. The Marines love their Navy corpsmen. Those are the, the medics for the Marines, and those people travel on the ground, a much more dangerous situation than I was flying into. I'm in training for that. I'd love to write their story. Leslie, thanks very much. The article is The Teen Brain, Hard at Work, and then there's a little subhead that says no, really, and that's in the current issue of Scientific American Mind. Thanks very much. Thank you. Leslie Saba's story on the teen brain is in the August-September issue of Scientific American Mind magazine. That's at newsstands, also available at www.siammind.com. And you can read her Iraq coverage online. Just Google Leslie Saba, that's S-A-B-B-A-G-H, and it's the first stuff that comes up. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, sunscreens can actually damage the skin. Story two, a large store chain is selling a kid's t-shirt that says, enough with the learning already, in their back-to-school sale. Story three, the thing called Pluto gets to stay a planet. And story four, physics Nobel laureate Frank Wilczek made his opera debut last week in Austria. We'll be back with the answer, but first... Tired of searching the internet in a vain attempt to answer your science question? Well, now you can ask a scientist. Darren Monroe of Fort Wayne, Indiana, wants to know... If and when the polarity of the Earth's axis flips, uh, will North become South? And how will that affect compasses? Will the needle point to the S instead of the N? And will we become known as the land down under instead of Australia? To find out, I called Kip Hodges. He was a guest on the July 26th podcast and is the founding director of the new School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. Well, that's a a really interesting question. Indeed, the uh, magnetic polarity on Earth does change from time to time. It looks like it changes uh, with a frequency of on the order of maybe 200 or 250,000 years at this point, as best we can tell from the geologic record. So it's not something that uh, is, is rare. It's something that we do see time and again. And if uh, uh, one of these occurs, indeed, and we're around to see it, indeed the situation will be that the uh, compass points in the opposite direction. You'll have the north arrow actually pointing toward what used to be the, the south magnetic pole. It's important to understand that the magnetic pole is always moving. Um, every year there is a, a drift in the magnetic pole. So every year your compass actually changes its orientation when it points. If you were to hold it in exactly the same direction from one year to the next, it is going to change. 
but you probably won't be able to perceive it, particularly if you live in sort of middle latitudes like uh, like we live here in the United States. So um, it's a constantly changing thing, but the flips are more catastrophic uh, processes, and they probably have to do with the interaction between the molten outer core of the Earth, which is sort of a, a constantly moving liquid metal, in effect, and the material surround it, the inner core, which is more rigid, and the, and the lower mantle, which is also more rigid. Um, so although we don't know uh, exactly when a, a flip in the magnetic pole is going to occur, we do know that they've occurred in the past. But the good news is that if you're trying to find yourself uh, with a compass, if you're trying to find your way with a compass, uh, you don't have to worry about it flipping catastrophically while you're on your traverse someplace, because it does appear to take quite a while for the uh, for the magnetic poles to flip on our planet, probably order ten, tens of thousands of years. Um, so it's not going to be something that happens overnight or in the five-minute period, but uh, they are things that it appears to be inevitable that at some point our, our polarity will flip. What's the geological evidence for for past flips? Our best record of the magnetic changes in the magnetic field polarity on our planet is on uh, is in volcanic rocks, uh, for which we know the ages quite well. And uh, whenever a, a volcanic rock crystallizes, the magnetic minerals in that rock uh, uh, have a certain orientation, crystallize in a certain orientation that's related to the magnetic uh, dipole on the planet. And so we actually see reversals in uh, the orientation of those minerals with time and therefore can can uh, uh, make a sequence of magnetic reversals through time. And actually the development of that sequence of magnetic reversals was key in the development of plate tectonic theory. It actually gave us the capacity uh, to look at uh, magnetic reversals on the seafloor and really then understand that there were certain parallels of the way that magnetic field reversals were distributed on the seafloor that is, a sense, is in a sense, a, a track or a record of, uh, of seafloor spreading. And as far as the northern hemisphere becoming the land down under, that's just a matter of convention, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Send your science questions to podcast at siam.com. And if we pick your science question... Johnny, tell them what they've won! An answer to your science question from an actual scientist. Plus, we'll have you ask a question yourself on the podcast. So, send your science questions to podcast at siam.com today. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, sunscreens can actually damage the skin. Story two, stores selling back-to-school t-shirts that say, enough with the learning already. Story three, Pluto's still a planet. And story four, physics Nobelist sings opera. Time's up. Story four is true. Frank Wilczek, winner of the 2004 Nobel Prize in Physics and our guest on the May 3rd podcast, made his operatic singing debut last week in Austria. The asymptotic freedom-fighting baritone played the oxygen atom in an opera titled Atom and Eve. You can read more on the blog of his wife, Betsy Devine. That's at betsydevine.weblogger.com. And don't miss the great photo of Frank's car, totaled by a fallen tree in New Hampshire. Gravity, not just a good idea, it's the law. Story two is true. I'm looking at the flyer right now that was in the Sunday paper advertising a large chain store's back-to-school sale. That's the flyer featuring a T-shirt that says, 
Enough with the learning already. I'm not saying which store it is because I don't want to cause a run on these stupid things. And I'm including this as a science story because you should keep learning science, you rotten kids. What, do you want to drive you, teach you to suicide? You don't wear that to school. You don't wear it to school on the first day of school. Now, let let me tell you what might be funny, what might have made this a little cleverer. Maybe you spell one of the words wrong in enough with the learning already that you wear on your t-shirt to the first day of school. Or if the teacher is wearing that t-shirt on the first day of school, that might be funny. But what isn't funny is when you're pumping $6 a gallon gas into the spiffy new hybrid vehicle of the guy who didn't think he'd had enough with the learning already. Okay, I'm done. Story one is true. Sunscreens may actually contribute to skin damage. That's according to new research out of the University of California, Riverside. The key is to make sure that a fresh layer of sunscreen is always on the skin. That's the key to protection. If the stuff penetrates down deep enough, UV light hitting the unprotected top layer can cause some chemical reactions that produce compounds that damage the skin much as the UV itself does. And this research will appear in the journal Free Radical Biology and Medicine. All of which means that story three about Pluto remaining a planet is, as you well know, totally bogus. Because astronomers last week voted Pluto off the island. And that's despite the recommendations of the Planet Advisory Committee of the International Astronomical Union, which we talked about on the August 16th podcast with Richard Binzel, one of the members of that committee. And now everyone's ticked off because the vote took place on the last day of the conference after most of the 2,500 attendees had left, so only about 430 astronomers were around to decide the issue. Look for the Pluto status to raise its ugly head again in the coming years. Although the definitive definition of what Pluto is can actually be found in the book The Information by Martin Amos. That's on page 55 in the Vintage International Edition. I'd read it to you, but there may be children in the room. Of course, the really important astronomy story of the week had to do with evidence for the existence of dark matter, and we'll talk about that on next week's podcast. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Hey, Pluto. How is it going? Fine, you wanted to see me, Mr. Thun. So, uh, Pluto, uh, any chance you're going to be uh, cleaning out that desk soon? Um, I, I was told that I would not have to be cleaning out my desk, so I was not planning to clean out my desk anytime Ouch, soon. Ouch, yeah, seems like somebody missed a memo. Uh, turns out upper management at IAU going over the TPS reports, and um, long short is uh, we're letting you go, Pluto. 
I was told specifically two weeks ago that I was not going to be let go, that the advisory committee had yeah, made a decision yeah, that I was going to stay. Yeah, it turns out uh, you and Xena and Ceres are uh, all being reassigned over to uh, dwarf planet status. But, uh, but I, I, this is not fair. I have 75 years in, and they are only on probation and uh, yeah, the whole situation. Yeah, so we're going to set you up with uh, dwarf planet status sort of uh, away from the rest of the planets and uh, uh, there are no benefits with that position. I'm taking my stapler. <laughs>